0: Hey, what's up, storytellers? I am super excited to announce the launch of 88 Cups of Tea's first beta challenge for keeping our storytellers accountable with their work in progress. For those of you who've been a part of our free private Facebook group for the past three years, or those of you who joined our recent pop-up Facebook group that supported those who participated in NaNoWriMo, you all know my style and my personality. I'm the mama hen who loves to cheer people on and nothing makes me happier than seeing my community succeed. So for this beta challenge, it's going to be an intense 31 days where I post accountability threads every single day for the entire month of March. And yes, I am talking about Saturdays and Sundays too. This will all take place in a brand new private Facebook group that I'll keep open and active just for the duration of our challenge. I'm gonna send our beta testers the private link to join the group a few days before the start of the challenge so we can introduce ourselves, share our main goal for the month, and refine them if needed. This goal setting part is extremely important for the challenge because that's how we'll break down our weekly goals. During the challenge, in addition to the daily threads, I'm gonna check in at the end of each week in a live video for us to chat. My main mission here is to push you to level up through encouragement and some tough love, But of course, you know me, I'll always sprinkle in some playful fun. Because this is a beta launch where I'm also going to figure out what works best for you and what kinds of things may not be necessary, and also fleshing out the details and structure along the way, I am going to price this at less than a dollar a day. For those of you who love numbers, that's like exactly 94 cents a day, which comes out to only $29 to join this challenge for all 31 days in March, along with the extra bonus days where we all check in about our goals before we start the challenge. As a heads up, I do feel like I need to say this. This beta challenge is not for everyone. If you're planning on flaking out halfway in, please do not join because this is not the space for you. You need to be able to commit to show up during our entire challenge. You're a great fit if you're looking for external encouragement and accountability, and you thrive off of the collective energy of a community. If this sounds exactly like you and you'd love a spot in my upcoming beta launch, the deadline to join is on Monday, February 25th by 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Send us an email at hello at 88cupsoftea.com, and in the subject line, be sure to write, I'm in, and we'll follow up with the next steps. Okay, now on to today's guest, Samantha Shannon. Samantha is the New York Times and Sunday Times bestselling author of the Bone Season series. Film and TV rights have been acquired by Imaginarium Studios and her work has been translated into 26 languages. Her upcoming novel, The Priory of the Orange Tree, is her fourth novel and her first outside of the Bone Season series and releases on February 26th. In Samantha's episode, we discuss her commitment to writing at a young age and overcoming fears. We flesh out her research process, how she approaches world building, and how to best manage our writing goals. All right, now let's jump right in because you're going to really love this episode. When was it when you first fell in love with storytelling? And then we'll go from there.
1: I can never quite pinpoint a moment where I fell in love with storytelling. And I imagine a lot of writers have this thing because it often happens in our childhood, so the memories are quite vague. I do remember I was a reader since I was very little, and I was an absolutely voracious reader. And I was also very good at English at school. That was my favorite subject. And I guess storytelling for me really started with fan fiction, or what we would now call fan fiction, but I did not know was called that at the time. And I used to basically have a little diary that I would write sequels to my favorite movies in. Oh. No, it was quite sweet. And like, I remember I wrote like a sequel to Star Wars Episode One, which was my, my kind of introduction into Star Wars. And I just remember writing about Padme because I loved her so much. And I would just do that. And I didn't know that was a thing that people wrote fan fiction. I just thought there was never enough in the movies for me. So I would always want to write more about characters that didn't get enough screen time. So I guess that was kind of where I started with storytelling. And I think, I guess the first original thing I wrote was when I was about eight or nine years old, and I wrote a book called Xenia, Daughter of the Moon. (laughs) I think that's 100% ripped off Xena Warrior (laughs) Princess. And I wrote this book, and I don't think it was very long. I think it was probably 50 pages or something like that. And I I must have typed it on the computer, and I was very proud of it. So I said to my grandma, grandma, can we send my book to Penguin so they can publish it? And... So we packaged this this book up. I printed it off and we sent it to Penguin. And I was very sad that I never heard a reply. But then as an adult, I realized that I had not included my name or address with the book. Oh my God. And it was my only copy. So even if someone at Penguin had wanted to be very nice to an eight-year-old and encourage them to carry on, there was no way they could possibly have contacted me. <laughs>
0: so Wait, can I jump in here and ask you how
1: on earth you knew about Penguin at eight years old? I think I must have just read a book with Penguin on it because they have that really distinct kind of orange logo, and I must—I guess—that just stuck in my head above any other publisher. So I'm, I kind of like to imagine that this manuscript is lying around Penguin somewhere, gathering dust, <laughs> like, <laughs> and it will be one day be discovered as my juvenilia. <laughs> oh, that is so cute! I love that your grandma was so supportive too. grandma is so supportive. She loves my books, um, which really surprised me because she didn't immediately strike me as kind of a fantasy reader, but she's absolutely obsessed with them. She's always chasing when the next one's going to come out. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're so lucky you have
0: someone like who's been in your corner since you were a kid, since I'm sure like even younger and before eight years old. Okay, so that surprises me. I mean, just overall that you were aware enough to notice that orange bright logo of Penguin at such a young age, because from the conversations that I've had prior, so many people did not realize that being an author could have been an actual career could have been an actual thing for them like so many people from what I hear at a young age thought that authors didn't really exist it was more so like these magical beings and it was just like this book that fell in your hands and we kind of don't think of the concept of oh wait yes that's an actual person that actually takes the time to write books as part of their career or full-time or part-time like it never hit me till I was I think oh gosh I think high school so that's why I'm like dang you are such a smart observant
1: kid it's crazy to me well yeah it was funny because I actually experienced a similar thing to you and I've said this before about JK Rowling kind of being the first time I realized that people wrote books and I think when I sent the book to Penguin I still didn't really think that there were loads of people out there who actually created the books. I guess I guess I knew because I knew that I could publish a book through Penguin, but I never really thought about authors as people. They were just names on a book. And mm. you the most you see of them, it's a weirdly anonymous kind of fame. Like the most you see of them is maybe a picture at the back of the book. So... Even though I had this weird thing with Penguin, it wasn't until in the UK, obviously, JK Rowling's story was absolutely massive, this amazing rags to riches story. And again, my grandma was the one who introduced me to Harry Potter. And she said, Oh, there's this lady, and she's written this amazing book, and you need to read it, like all the children find it amazing. And that was, I guess, the first time that I was like, Oh, this is a an author, who does this for a living, and she created Harry Potter. So for me, I guess Harry Potter was the first time I was connecting a human being to a story being created, if that makes sense.
0: Wow, okay. And what age was that when you were first introduced to Harry Potter?
1: When did Harry Potter come out? Was it 1997
0: or... I just found out that I'm a Hufflepuff mixed with a Gryffindor. Like, I literally just found this out last year, so I'm the last person to ask. I'm terrible. But it was quite a while ago, because I remember reading... The first Harry Potter, I think, but I'm 31 now,
1: and I think I read it when I was 11, 12. I think probably about right because I think I was a little bit younger than that, but I was near enough to Harry's age that I felt as if I was growing up with him and that generation that kind of grew up with Harry because he was so close to my own age. So I think I don't know nine or 10 or something like that. I can't. It was it was like the late 90s that it came out. I was born in 1991, so yeah.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. Backtracking at eight years old, you sent this story, Xena, Daughter of the Moon, and your grandma was amazing to help send this off to Penguin for you and with you. From there, walk me through like elementary school, middle school, high school, where you set in stone with the thought of, okay, that's it, I'm
1: going to be an author. Yes, once I knew about J.K. Rowling, that was what I wanted to do. Before that, I wanted to be a paleontologist. Which- what? definitely had nothing to do with Jurassic Park. Then I wanted to be a vet until I realized I was terrible at science, then J.K. Rowling came along and saved me from being in a career that I would ultimately have been terrible at. So basically, from then on, I wanted to be an author. And I guess I started writing kind of regularly when I was about 13. But before that, I did write another book when I was 10 or 11. When I say book, I use that in the very loosest sense of the word. It was not not very long, but it was called Inferno. (laughs) And it was about dragons in Area 51. It's kind of a decent-ish idea, I suppose, for a 10-year-old. And I wrote that. And it was this very kind of intense book about these teenagers that had dragon friends and they had to go to this other realm and fight demons. (laughs) And I can't remember what happened to that. It's really frustrating because I know I printed it off and I've had my mum looking for it and we can't find it anywhere, um, but I'm sure it's around somewhere um so i wrote that then i when i was 15 i started writing a book called aurora and that was my full length first novel that was something ridiculous like 200,000 words long this became my obsession throughout my teenage years so sort of from 15 through to about 18 i was writing aurora and this one was the one that i really wanted to get published this is when i started sort of taking up on my eight-year-old penguin knowledge and trying to find information about how to get a book published. So I went and found out about literary agents. And I was, you know, when I was packaging up the manuscript to be sent off, I was very kind of careful to get everything right, like the right font and the special envelope and making sure that I was only sending it to agents who wanted fantasy, et cetera, et cetera. And I was kind of doing this throughout high school and even sort of into my early days at university. And ultimately, it did not come to anything because Aurora was kind of terrible. (laughs) So that didn't get that was kind of a defining moment of my teenage years because I was so heartbroken when I eventually gave up on it because I was just devastated. I poured so much of my life into it and spent so much time working on this book when other people were you know, out doing normal teenage things. I was just in the house writing this book. And when it didn't get published, it was just like my whole life had fallen apart. You know, I have to say it's
0: incredible. I feel like I know it's extremely heartbreaking that you had to move on from that because there was so much that you sacrificed during those years 15 to 18 years old is a really long time in your most i would say most pivotal times of your your youth but at the same time i'm just like you taught yourself so much about diligence and perseverance and persistence and i'm sure all of that heartbreak taught you so much about persevering through all the other books that you started to work on after you were 18. You know what I mean? Like Those are life skills that you can't learn in school or even really outside experiences at that age. I mean, I'm just so curious where all of this sprang from like where did this come from where were these inspirations from like were you reading books that inspired you to want to look into paleontology and also looking into like you maybe you read something that inspired you to write about dragons and area 51 kind of setting Like, where did those ideas come from? Like, it's just so fascinating to me because at that age, I'm like thinking about climbing up a tree with my cousin or playing video games. You know what I mean?
1: Well, um, I think that actually a lot of the time it was films. So dinosaurs was my obsession as a kid. I think most kids get some kind of obsession that consumes their whole life. And mine was dinosaurs. I could have told you like the full name of every dinosaur by the time I was about six. I was constantly at the National History Museum just obsessing over dinosaur bones. And that was my childhood thing. And I guess that fed into the paleontology thing because I tended to see something in a film that I thought was cool and then I wanted to do that. And the dragons in Area 51, I would say, definitely came from Dragonheart, which was such a formative film for me. I saw it, I think, on my fifth birthday. We all went to the cinema to see it together, like me and my friends. And I remember I was so annoyed because one of my friends was really scared. And I was just like, <laughs> being such a baby, it's really cool. Um, so I think, I think that's where that came from. I tended to be quite informed by films. I did... Read very extensively, and I think that The Dragons probably also came from this book called Dragon Rider by Cornelia Funker, and that was my absolute favorite childhood book. But a lot of the, the main books I was reading actually weren't that fantastical, so some of my favorite authors as a child were Jacqueline Wilson and Mallory Blackman, um, who are these very big British authors who write contemporary fiction. I was also reading The Worst Witch by Jill Murphy. So that's kind of a precursor to Harry Potter. It's about a girl who goes to a magical school and learns to be a witch and it's great fun. So I guess my reading and just general media consumption was fueling my imagination. And also um, I was a gamer from a young age as well. I absolutely loved playing Tomb Raider and I think Tomb Raider really fired my imagination as well, just making me want to explore things and go on adventures. And so, yeah, it was kind of... Multiple sources. It was my reading and gaming and films and just everything coming together just to give me this huge imagination, I think. What about Aurora? I am curious. What was Aurora about? So, Aurora, I now pitch as Twilight with Aliens. (laughs) And it was basically about a young woman who may or may not have strongly resembled myself who was locked in this life of boredom. And then this beautiful alien just appears and comes into her life. And strangely, this alien actually became a blueprint for a character in one of my published books. And When I read it back, it was kind of, you can see how media had kind of affected my idea of the kind of relationships that girls should be in. Um, it was quite, when I read back my kind of diaries from that time and read back the dialogue, I, I was always quite disturbed by it because I, I seem to have got it into my head when I was a young teenager that you need like a really possessive, jealous man And when I read that back, I I really do find that quite unnerving. And I could see that throughout Aurora when I read it back to myself. It was just, I guess, my kind of general love for media again, just somehow informing it. I don't exactly know where it came from. It was just kind of there.
0: This has just been hitting me because I've been reading a lot of headlines or just summaries of upcoming books. I'm like, damn, how time has changed right now. Thank God, because of how much it's evolved where it's now women don't even need a romantic love story or whatever, you know, many times now there's books coming out where it's like, so what? Yeah, I didn't add a a romance storyline in there. Why do I need to? Like, she's too busy saving the freaking world.
1: And what? You know? It's fantastic now that we have so much more diversity and so much better representation. And also, you know, when we have problematic content on the page, we tend to call it out. So I've always believed that you shouldn't just have to present perfect characters and relationships in books. But If you explore it on the page, then, you know, you're actually saying to your readers, you're encouraging them to think about this and to say, like, what do you think? Mm.
0: At what age did you realize you're like, wait, I need to change the narrative. I need to write what I don't see. I need to represent myself.
1: I think it was actually when I was kind of at the end of high school to early university. And a lot of this had to do with me discovering The Handmaid's Tale. And that was actually when I discovered feminism was a thing. It's also when I discovered dystopia was a thing. So it was a very formative read for me. And that was when I started to think about, you know, how we portray relationships in books and how we portray women in books in particular. And that was, I guess, when I started just to think about books in general and kind of the stories that we're telling. So I think it was probably as I left high school. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: So that's still pretty early on then. Did you realize like as you were writing your books after high school that you were intentionally writing stronger female characters for example compared to maybe when you were younger did you go into it with intention or it just kind of naturally seeped in after being influenced by handmaid's tale
1: i guess it was a little bit of both like i was definitely more aware of what i was doing and i ended up taking sort of the very basic outline of this character and putting him into my finished published book the bone season which was my debut but I completely reconstructed his personality from sort of the the ground up. He basically just has the same name and he's a sort of alien type being, but I completely just did a 180 on his personality. And I was definitely aware of that while I was doing it. And I was kind of acting in response to the original version of his character and trying to write something that was very different from that. And I guess that was also just when I became aware generally of how I was representing characters. Yeah. And what, what kind of, not necessarily what message I was giving, because I don't think every single book needs to have a message, but definitely the, the signals I was sending with my characters, you know, what was I saying about female characters with this character I was writing? Um, I have a lot of thoughts on the term strong female character, but I'll get into that later. <laughs> okay. I think it was a a mix of just general more awareness from having read The Handmaid's Tale, but also, you know, deliberately with intention, writing very different characters to what I wrote as a younger teenager. I now want to jump back into
0: your timeline of after high school. So you were focused and you were working on Aurora. When you put that away, was it because it was time for college applications or you just kind of knew it was time to just Put it away? Like,
1: was there a reason as to why you put it away? So Aurora died a very slow and painful death. It was already quite difficult for me to work on it generally because I was also working very hard to get into the university I wanted. And I was having to stay up really, really late to work on Aurora. And sometimes I would be studying until about 9 p.m. and then I would stay up till 4 a.m. working on Aurora. Even though my parents are incredibly supportive of my writing, it got to the point where my mum was confiscating my keyboard because she said, you need... To sleep as well as study, and this is a, this is a huge passion for you, and we really support you in that. But you're you're making yourself sick doing this, so that was kind of you know my whole high school and kind of when I was doing my exams and all of that. Uh, it was warring with Aurora with with this passion I had, and when I went to university, I, I went to Oxford, and it's a very very demanding schedule there. You have to produce eight essays every term. And so again, you know, I was vying against wanting to academically do well versus also wanting to work on Aurora. So when I sent it to agents, you know, I didn't get any take-ups on it and that was already kind of bruising (laughs) for me because I was just so sad that these agents weren't seeing, you know, what I saw in it. I guess I knew it was dead because I started to basically keep editing it and I believe that after a while you can edit the love out of something, which sounds incredibly kind of corny, but when you write, you kind of bring this raw passion to something, you bring emotion to it. And I think there's a point in editing where you can go slightly too far and it gets drained out of the manuscript. And I think I just kept editing it, thinking if only I just edited it right then you know, it would get published. And I just edited and edited and edited until it was just completely milked of everything I'd originally loved about it. And at some point, I remember, I distinctly remember the moment I decided to stop working on it. And I think it was about kind of maybe midway through my first year at university. And I'd gone home for the weekend and I just burst into tears because I felt like I had just wasted so much on this book and I know now that whatever you write is experience and it feeds in to you growing as a writer but at the time I just couldn't see that all I could see was that I'd wasted so long and that I was never going to be an author and that this dream of mine that I'd had since I was a child was just never going to happen and I just couldn't see past that I, it just meant that I was a failure and that I couldn't do this thing that I thought I was really good at So it was just this really, it sounds incredibly dramatic now, but it really, at the time I was just completely, you know, just heartbroken.
0: First of all, I don't think it sounds dramatic at all because that was a real experience that you were going through. I think it sounds worse than a breakup. This is all of you, all of your energy pouring into this work. This is your baby. This is your child. Do you remember how you were able to get through such a a rough time. And it doesn't matter if you're 15, 18, 24, 38, 57. You are all going to go through sufferings, multiple sufferings throughout our entire lives, right? Do you remember how you're able to get through it? Were you trying to lean on friends and family just to kind of get your mind
1: off of it? Or it was kind of like a slow grieving process? Well, the friends thing was actually part of it because it was kind of embarrassing because I'd spent my, you know, my high school saying, oh, yeah, I'm working on this book and I want to be a writer. And the idea that it it was almost like a public failure because I told people about it and then it wasn't going to happen. So I can't remember the exact timelines. I guess it's kind of hazy in my head, probably because it's a period I've just blocked out mentally a little bit. But I didn't write again for quite a long time. And I think the first time I wrote again was when I got the idea for The Bone Season. And what happened there was, so there was one agent who'd read Aurora that said that he didn't want to represent Aurora because it wasn't his kind of thing. But he said that I was a good writer and that he would like to hear from me again if if I wrote anything else. And that I, I really took some heart from that. And I was a little bit cheeky because I said to him, I, I basically asked if he had any internships because my plan B was, you know, if I couldn't write books, I wanted to work in publishing and he very kindly said i could i could work as his assistant for a summer and I did. And it was actually really interesting seeing things from the agent's end, because when you're a writer and you're just so desperate to be published, you just don't understand why agents don't want your manuscript. And it's so frustrating because you don't know why they're turning you down, because you know agents are so busy, they, they can't possibly give an individual reply to everyone. So I did that. And that was actually really interesting for me, just learning about why the agent turned certain manuscripts down and why he didn't. And while I was there, the agent has his office in a place called Seven Dials in in London. And I became completely fascinated by this area. I, I often kind of get very drawn to places. And it was a district in London I'd never been to before. And it's basically seven streets coming together and sort of meeting at this pillar And I just loved it. And the setting gave me inspiration because there's a lot of sort of places around there, kind of little new age stores that sell crystal balls and tarot cards and that kind of thing. And I became kind of fixated on this idea, like what if there were clairvoyants in London? And Mm -hmm. so I used to rush out. I remember I rushed out and bought a notebook and I kind of like fully ran for half an hour to the nearest post office to buy this notebook and then during my lunch breaks I would start writing down ideas that and about this kind of world where there were clairvoyants and I was kind of pitching it like um, a futuristic witch trials and I just kept writing and suddenly I had this idea and it was like all of my creative energy that had died with Aurora was rising again And I just shot off back to university once I was done with my internship. And I wrote just solidly for about six months while I was in my second year of university. And once again, I was kind of vying between my academic achievement and writing. But this time it felt worth it. It just felt like this was exciting again. With Aurora, it had become almost a chore towards the end. And this was thrilling. I couldn't wait to finish my kind of work for the day and then rush back to my room and write. And it was just so exciting. And that's kind of how I got my creative energy back, I guess. Wow. I love to travel and I'm like, girl, you're giving me some travel
0: tips. Thank you. I need to divert and just let you know, clairvoyance, all that stuff. I am so scared to mess around with that stuff. Like, (laughs) I personally am such a superstitious person because uh, I was raised Buddhist, I think naturally, and I don't want to speak for all people who were raised with Asian upbringing, but my family particularly, and I noticed also my girlfriend, she's Taiwanese, I'm Taiwanese and Malaysian our cultures, our traditions, it just naturally ties in with superstition just from what I've observed with my relatives and my family. And I think my mom always like told me, don't you ever go to anybody that claims to be a psychic. You don't want to mess with that stuff. And I'm like, okay, because she would tell me like, From her country, Malaysia, there were like some magic, even voodoo stuff. And I was like, what? I don't want to mess with that at all. Even shops with crystal balls. I get a little nervous going in because I heard one of my friends was saying that be careful with crystal balls because if you touch it, it may transfer energies from other people who've touched it. And not that it's evil, but maybe something about your energy just doesn't mesh well with that certain energy in that ball, for example, and it might mess with your day to day. And it, it just like freaked me out. And I just had to jump and share that with you because I haven't had this chance to share that at all on the podcast but I'm like oh my gosh that's so crazy that you brought that up but are you like open to seeing people with clairvoyant abilities or are you, it's just something are you like me where you're like
1: oh hell no I'm exactly like you because everyone asks why would you have written a book about clairvoyance I tell you what someone tried to give me a tarot reading once. Oh hell no <laughs> I ran to the other side of the room and then I felt really vindicated because my friend got a tarot reading and he got Ten of Swords. And I know that everyone kind of says, oh, you know, tarot can have positive meanings, but it's quite a scary looking card. It's kind of like ten swords driven into this guy kind of lying flat on the floor. And again, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, there's various positive meanings you can read into the tarot, but I just it would have freaked me out if I'd got that because I am quite superstitious and I think it would play on my mind if that happened. So actually, weirdly, I have never been to see a clairvoyant and I'm like you, I get a little bit nervous around anything like that. And yet I was so I couldn't think of a book that had kind of created a whole magic system out of it. So I got really excited by that. And I actually liked the idea of using my own slight fear of it and I thought well I'm sure a lot of people feel like that so this is actually this actually kind of works for a dystopian setting because if the clairvoyant people are going to be the ones that the dystopian government is kind of trying to shut down you know that made sense to me because I was a little bit nervous about it
0: oh that is brilliant I'm also shocked just for research
1: purposes that you didn't even sit in a reading. (laughs) It sounds bad because (laughs) I was too nervous to do it myself. And but weirdly, I was like, that is you think of like the witch trials and things like that. People are scared of what they don't understand. And I was kind of scared of what I didn't understand. So I guess I was kind of drawing on that. And to this day, I I keep thinking, oh, you should get a tarot reading. You should do this. But I'm just too nervous about hearing something that I don't want to hear
0: what a great productive way of making something out of your fear right I'm like my gosh I feel like listeners are taking a lot away from this and probably wondering hey what am I afraid of oh my gosh maybe I could work that into my story maybe I can figure out how to get
1: rid of my fear of sharks next I should
0: (gasps) wait I am afraid of sharks too like I'm deathly afraid like I cannot I look at them I see them in commercials for shark week I cannot I start sweating I cannot even look at them you have no idea
1: sharks are wonderful creatures and I have a great deal of respect for them. I just don't want them to be near me. So my salute to this is that I never ever go in the sea. I have not, uh, the last time I went in the sea was when I went on a research trip to Japan. Um, I think it was two years ago and I dipped my foot into the sea and I waded out and I was determined because I have got this kind of sea phobia because of sharks. I was like, yeah. right, I'm gonna beat this. I'm gonna walk right out to my waist because the water was really warm and that was really exciting because in the UK the water is always freezing. So it was like going into a hot bath. And I walked in a little bit and then suddenly something brushed my leg and I'm sure it was nothing sinister. It was probably just a little bit of seaweed. I had a full panic attack and the panic attack caused me to fall over into <gasps> sea. So then the sea was in my face and I just remember my, my little brother had to like drag me out of the sea because I was just screaming. <laughs> it, was just, it was ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I am ridiculous. <laughs> oh my gosh, I
0: love this because I think the listeners are going to just love hearing like all our little fears and like, wait, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Okay, so j- jumping back in because I'm so curious. So when you mentioned that you were working on your story the agent that you originally submitted aurora to and he's like okay sorry but not this one but if you're working on something else i'd love to read that one and check that out as well in the future whenever you're ready and then you were like okay can i do you have an internship open by any chance so
1: that was around the time of university so i'm assuming what you were like 19. Yes, I was 19. And that's actually why the main character is 19, because I just wanted to write about someone who was the same age as me. That was incredible that you were able to see
0: behind the scenes of of their own point of view, why they turn away certain manuscripts and whatnot. So that was a really eye-opening experience for you. So was that a summer that you interned there? So it was just probably like, I'm assuming three months or two months?
1: Oh, I don't think it was even that long. I think I think it was six weeks in the summer of two thousand and eleven. Oh, six weeks. Okay, wow. Okay, so even with six weeks, you were able to learn a lot, and like it was really
0: eye opening for you.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, I, it really did teach me a lot about the other side, because I think when you're a writer and you get to this point of desperation of being published, it can be quite easy to start resenting the agents and thinking that they're this kind of gatekeeper who, who are keeping the gates closed to you. And that's completely not the case. So it was really... Just so educational to go in and just see, you know, how many manuscripts agents are getting and what is grabbing their attention and what is causing them to say, okay, maybe not this time. It was just an incredibly valuable experience for me you already sent a query letter
0: over to him, which is how you were able to send over Aurora to the agent, right? Because so I remember you mentioned you did a lot of thorough research or whatever you could find on the internet at the time to write a query letter and to submit and all of that stuff and like cover letters. So you just wrote that one and then he passed on Aurora and then he became your agent for bone season. Yeah. It was just that one query letter for Aurora and that was it. You just had a literary agent from then on.
1: So I left the internship and I went back to university and I wrote the first draft of The Bone Season. And basically I was terrified of sending it to anyone because I was still kind of burned from Aurora. And I was thinking, oh man, that just I can't write. I'm so scared of being rejected again. So I basically... There was this very lucky instance where this author called Ali Smith, who is a very well-known Scottish author, she came to uh, my college at university and she offered to look at samples of students' writing. And I was absolutely terrified of sending it to her because, again, I've been burned. And Mm -hmm. I kind of packaged up the first chapter and emailed it over. And then she asked me to come, you know, to talk to her about it. And I went with my notebook and I was so determined, you know, I was going to take all her feedback. I was going to, you know, act on it and I was going to listen to the constructive criticism and it was going to be fine. So I sat down and she just said, you're a natural. This should be published. You could publish this right now. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in complete shock, like someone's hit me with a lightning bolt. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And um, did you say publish this now? And she says, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> you should get an agent. I was completely shocked by this. And she had made a few little notes on the manuscript, but I just remember she'd written in red pen at the end, you're a natural. And this was incredible for me. This was a published author telling me that actually the thing that I really loved doing, you know, I had potential. I was good at it. And this was just like, I ran out of the office after I was finished speaking to her and I called my mum. And I just said, mom, you're never going to believe it. This author said that I was a good writer and I'm really excited. So I kind of did this frantic last minute edit on the bone season. And then I sent it back to the agent I'd previously worked for. And I actually didn't think he was going to take the bone season because it was kind of a weird sort of urban fantasy, dystopian hybrid type thing. I wasn't even sure if it was YA or adult And I didn't expect him to take it, but I said, could you maybe recommend me some agents who might be interested in this? And so he kind of said, okay, yeah, let me take a look at it. And I didn't hear back from him for about a week, which was the most nerve-wracking week of my life. And then finally he came back and he said, I want to be your agent. Again, I was just in total shock. And because this thing that I dreamed about happening my whole life and that I had become convinced would not happen... Was suddenly happening and it was happening really, really quickly. So I went to London from Oxford and I, I went and signed with the agent as, as my agent properly. I was now one of his clients. And then he started, you know, trying to sell it to publishers. And we had a lot of interest straight away. And I met Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury was, you know, the first publisher I went to meet, and I just loved their team so much. And it was so surreal for me because Bloomsbury, you know, is the Harry Potter publisher. And I just, it was just mind blowing. I went in there and, you know, the whole team came and just said how much they loved it and how much they wanted to publish it. And again, this was all happening really, really quickly. And and I know now that some authors spend a really long time on submission and this just happened at a breakneck speed. And it was just the craziest few weeks of my life. I feel like that is such
0: incredible news, but I also feel like, isn't that a lot of pressure on you too with the books following up like afterwards, you know what I mean? Cause I hear about how I I just had a very interesting conversation with an author just, I think a month ago who mentioned like the first book was also super fast. Everything happened really quickly, but she never expected the pressure that she'd feel for the second book afterwards so did you feel any of that or does your team allow you the time to write because you know this is something i never thought about and also by the way samantha i've obviously i've never written a book myself so that's why for me i'm just like jumping in from a non-writer's point of view but for me i just try to imagine like you know and it's something that i never thought of where yes the first book you had kind of in a way all this time in the world to write what you wanted to write, right? Because there's no pressure. No one's really waiting on anything. But then the second time comes around, especially after there was such a well-received first debut book, then all of a sudden you have so much expectation and there's so many people waiting in the woodworks that weren't there before for your first book. Is that a similar experience for you?
1: yes, normally you'd be absolutely right. But for me, that pressure was there for the first book because the bizarre thing that happened where, because I was so young, I mean, I signed the deal when I was 20 and that caused a lot of media interest in me. And, you know, from a really early point, I had this label attached to me, the next JK Rowling. It was petrifying because, I mean, now I look back on it, it was obviously a mixed blessing because it caused interest in me, which was a good thing. But it was also setting me up for a fall because no one can be as successful as J.K. Rowling. You know, it's not it's not something that happens more than once in a generation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was talking to people, they would just be like, oh, how does it feel to be the next J.K. Rowling? My book wasn't even out yet. Nobody had read it outside my publishing house and my agent. So there was this enormous pressure. And before I knew it, I was doing just the most things I never possibly imagined doing. Like I was flown out to New York for a day to do a photo shoot. I was the first book club pick for the Today Show. I mean, it was just terrifyingly huge things were happening. Again, nobody had read the book. So again, it was a mixed blessing. It, It caused there to be a lot of, I know now that it kind of caused me to be a success immediately because everyone had heard of me and because there was all this kind of noise around the book, but it was also crushing pressure. And I ended up kind of developing anxiety because of it because it just felt like everyone was waiting for this book and there was so much hype and it was kind of terrifying and even while it was happening I sort of felt a little bit uncomfortable with it because I knew that it was because of my age and I think publishing does have this slight oddness when it comes to age. Everyone is obsessed with kind of the new shiny debut and people who are very young are kind of lauded in a way that is not very comfortable for me. So I kind of knew that everything that was happening was happening mostly because of me, not because of the book. The weird thing was that I didn't really know any other authors. So at the time, I had no idea whether this was normal or abnormal or what my experience was compared to other people's experiences. And now I know that the experience I went through was pretty unusual for a debut. It doesn't often happen that you get this big media storm and that you're doing all of these things and I'm very grateful for it because that is the reason I was a New York Times bestseller straight away. And I think it's also what allowed me to make the kind of transatlantic jump because I really can't remember the last time I saw a British YA author on the list. Um, I think the last one was probably Taryn Matthew who wrote the Summoner series, but it is quite hard for British authors to break into the American market. And I, I do think that that happened for me just because of this next J.K. Rowling tack, which was kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time. And I remember when the Bone season did come out, which was in 2013, you know, it sold very well and Bloomsbury were very happy with it. But I remember I did an interview a few weeks after and someone said to me, how does it feel that you didn't sell as many books as J.K. Rowling?
0: (laughs) What the hell kind of insensitive question is that? Like that is such a ridiculous question for anybody to ask.
1: Well, it was silly and I knew it was coming because the whole time I'd been set up the next J.K. Rowling. So even if I sold you know, if I somehow sold like two million books, which I didn't, by the way, but if, if I had sold that many, I would still have been a failure compared to J.K. Rowling. So the whole time I was being set up to not, and I knew from the beginning, of course, I wasn't going to be the next J.K. Rowling. Everyone was telling me I was going to be, but I knew that it's impossible. So it was this very strange year and a half kind of building up to publication. And at the same time, I was trying to do my exams as well. So the whole pressure was absolutely crushing. It was, you know, everyone talking about the book when it wasn't even out yet. And then I was trying to do my exams and be a normal student at the same time. And again, I don't at all want to sound ungrateful for it, because this is very unusual. And I was very, very lucky. But at the same time, it was scary. And to this day, it is the strangest year and a half ever of my life.
0: When you mentioned that you were being blasted all over news about about being the next J.K. Rowling, about how amazing this series is gonna be, it's gonna do this, do that. And you said that people haven't even read the book yet. So at that time, did you still have time to submit revisions? I think about my grandpa who's an artist a painter and he when he feels like there's a lot of pressure for his one-man show coming up he suddenly goes back and edits unnecessarily when when people already loved his work for what it was before all of that pressure you know and then it starts to
1: tweak and mess with his actual genuine authentic voice i think the painting is, is a fantastic analogy so this was all completely new to me i didn't really know anything about editing or copy editing or all of the various stages of publishing. And actually I set up my blog at the time. It's called a book from the beginning because I was trying to kind of shed light on the process that I didn't even understand. So I guess when I was editing, I was just kind of listening to my editor. But yes, if I was afraid because of all the hype, I was kind of thinking, is the hype matching my actual ability? You know, (laughs) if people hyping me up too much and of course when you're a debut and you get your first early reviews and you always remember the first negative one that just breaks your soul and it sort of proved that feeling right you know when the arcs went out like the advanced reading copies and inevitably you get mixed opinions on books so the and the negative ones would always be proving to me you know you're not worthy of this hype and yeah so I guess I did try and edit it sort of perhaps more than I should have. But at the same time, I was trying to balance editing with my exams and suddenly I had deadlines, which is not a thing I'd ever had before. (laughs) So it was a pressure cooker.
0: When you are looking back, because I know you're talking about that year and a half was really intense and unusual. Going back and looking back on it now with what you know today and your knowledge today with all the years afterwards, How do you think you would have relived that year and a half if you could? Maybe you would not change a thing, but part of being an artist, part of being a storyteller, is you got to take care of your mind and your soul and your heart or else that's it. Like there's no point of going on with your work. You know what I mean? Because your work comes from within. If you had the chance to do it over that one and a half years, do
1: you think there's anything you'd apply from what you know now and what you've learned along the way? I think that's a really good question. It's one I've never been asked before. Um, I think the main thing I would like to have told my younger self was, first of all, don't look at the reviews. <laughs> Second of all, at the time I was developing anxiety and I didn't realise and, my brain was kind of making up all of these worries about what was going to happen when the book came out. And I think I was getting kind of imposter syndrome as well because I was being told, you know, about this next J.K. Rowling thing. And I was really starting to feel like an imposter. And I was starting to think that everyone was going to find me out. And that actually, even though I'd worked for this my whole life, I didn't deserve it at all. And that just kept this message in my head was just you don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. And that was me getting anxiety, which I still have now, but I have it much more under control. But the thing is, because I didn't know what was happening to me, I just felt like I was going mad. I, I couldn't sleep and I got really, really sick because I was just so worried about what was going to happen when the book came out. And it's, and it's really frustrating because this is a time when I should have been just enjoying myself because this was the dream of my whole life, apart from the paleontology thing, but the dream of most of my life was humming to life. And I just want to go back and say to my younger self, you know, it's going to be okay. You you need to just enjoy all this stuff while it's happening. Mm. You mentioned that you have it much better under control
0: right now with anxiety. Are there any tips that you can kind of share with us like what we can do. I know there's practices like there's medication as well, but I mean, are there any practices that you really vouch for? Like, I don't know, like in the mornings, if you have a very set routine, because I know what helps me is kicking off my mornings with something warm or hot to drink. I know as simple as that sounds, you know, it's just something very grounding and something that you can rely on from the day to day and you know that you can have that you complete that I don't know something about me it just feels fulfilled and I can just get the day started no matter what chaos I hit and it could be just like hot water or even hot green tea you know like that's my personal preference and like trying to start the morning with a little bit of yoga or meditation just Again, a lot of it is practices and grounding myself personally, and that's what I try to suggest for the listeners. But again, everybody has a different style and different take. I mean, it sounds like you've gotten a really great control over it. So, do you have anything that you could pass
1: on to share with them about that? The having the hot drink thing—that's a perfectly good way of dealing with it. I mean, nothing is ever too small. If that helps you, then that's something great. That's perfect. For me, it's the most important thing about getting my anxiety under control was knowing I had anxiety. (laughs) And if you don't know you have it, you just don't know what is going on in your brain because it's like everything's just gone out of control. So I had to be taken out of university sort of towards the end of my degree. And I had to see a doctor because my parents were really worried about me and I was losing weight and I wasn't sleeping. And, you know, the doctor said, yeah, you have anxiety. That's, That's what's going on. And knowing that was very helpful. So some things I do, I I actually had a massive anxiety plummet just recently because um, my new book, The Priory of the Orange Tree, is coming out really soon. And what I tend to do is go into these anxious plummets at this particular point in the publishing process where the book has not quite gone to print yet. So there is still a chance that I could change something. But it would also be inconvenient for my publisher to change the thing. (laughs) And this very dangerous stage of publishing for me because that is when my brain starts telling me that everything's going to go very, very wrong and there's something in the book that shouldn't be there and you need to find it. And I had such a bad dip recently and I found that first of all, I started sharing online a little bit about it because I think it's so important to be open and not everybody can, but for me, I want to be someone who's open about what I'm going through because then other people can see that, you know, this is survivable and that other people have it. I've actually started talking as well to trusted friends about the worries I'm having and they can kind of talk me down and explain that that's not a logical worry. So I talk to my mum and I have a few close personal friends. And now I used to feel bad about texting them because I used to just think, you know, why does anyone want to hear your ridiculous thoughts about worries that will never come to pass? But I do that now. And that's really helpful because they'll say, no, Samantha, this is not rational worry. You need to stop worrying about that. And I sort of have like a self-care week when it happens now, usually. So something like what you said about, you know, having your morning hot drink, I'll do things like have a hot bath in the evenings and I will just let myself relax. For me, actually, I, I try to get lost in something creative because for me, writing actually helps me get the anxiety under control. And I think it's partly to do with me having a very vivid imagination. So that's why I can imagine these terrible scenarios in so much detail. So it's better if I'm writing because then I'm channeling that imagination into something positive. And that's so writing is in a way what helps me get it under control. Thank you so much for
0: that. I really appreciate that. I think that's something that isn't always talked about. And I don't know why that is. And I feel like unfortunately, because of society. And I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but like in America, it's still kind of, it's getting better. It's getting a little bit better compared to when I was in middle school. I remember when my mom was called into the office and talking about like where it would be good for me maybe to speak with like a therapist about something that's happened. And it, you know, there's a stigma and I know it's not just the Asian culture. I I know it's in America too, because I've seen it and I have friends who are, not of Asian upbringing, and they also were told that, you know, discussing things about even anxiety or depression or anything like that is kind of shunned when they were growing up, and it was almost seen as, at least my parents' generation, they're like, oh, that's crazy talk, you know, like, no, my daughter's fine, she doesn't need any help it's a very prideful kind of issue. And I noticed that it is changing bit by bit, thank goodness, with like those monthly awareness. I mean, unfortunately it has to take like a hashtag for people to be more aware about, you know what I mean? But at least it's getting out there. And I think this is something that not many people are still really comfortable to talk about. And I try my best to always just share and be as vulnerable and as transparent as possible with my own struggles, you know? Cause in the front, like, from photos from from facebook check-in videos and all that stuff yes i'm always very bubbly i'm very excited i'm always happy and that's genuine that's like still who i am and that's a part of me but also part of me is that i do still struggle with depression i still struggle you know i noticed as i got older that i do have anxiety and i didn't know that before and i think it's when you're getting older you kind of try to break old habits. And I find it's, it's again, I'm like 31 right now. And I, I was so used to doing certain things, certain ways and being so proud and so prideful about being, oh, so spontaneous all the time, which I still am. But then I notice like, I'm more like, I need to have habits. Like I need to have structure in certain things. And I'm more calm, even though I can go through like really you know, chaotic days and things like thrown at me left and right, like with auditions, rejections, all that stuff, it comes and goes. But as I'm older, I realize, sure, I was able to do that. But also I noticed that's why I was so frenetic. And I was so like, you know, I could hit rock bottom so super quick and get really depressed and not be able to almost get out of bed for days if there were like projects that I really, really put my heart and soul into like for acting roles. But if I didn't get it, I would get really down. And I never realized that the word was anxiety. You know, I didn't, I didn't pinpoint it until now that I'm hearing about the symptoms, reading about, learning more about it. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. I was trying to navigate this, this really tough industry as it is. And not knowing that I had, you know, like whether it was like anxiety and depression. And like you said, step number one is knowing that if you do have it, that's a whole huge hurdle that you just got over because then you're able to figure out what it is that you need to do to help yourself and be okay with it and be open and accepting about that. And also have those discussions with those that are close to you so that they are your support system. So I really appreciate you mentioning your circle of people where you can just call and say, Hey, listen, talk me off this ledge right now. Tell me, is this logical? Is this not? Tell me right now. Like, I know what I'm going through and I know what it is, but like, I need to hear from you. And that's kind of what I've noticed. Like I'll reach out to my sisters or my best friends or my significant other. And they're like, nah, girl, no, it's not as bad as you think it is. I'm like, okay, good, good, good. And I stick, take a step back. I sleep. And the next day I'm like, oh dude, that was like chill.
1: You know what I mean? Sleep is really restorative. And I think what what you said about having a bubbly personality but also having anxiety is really important because there's this kind of assumption that if you are a person with depression or anxiety, you always appear depressed or anxious, and that's just not the case. I can be very kind of outgoing and I can do an event and, you know, talk to people and appear really confident, but inside I can be, you know, full of anxiety. And that is a really important thing to acknowledge that, you know, having anxiety or depression doesn't look like any one thing. It's different for everyone. Oh my gosh, Samantha, I appreciate you so much. And I'm loving this
0: conversation so much. Now, let me go into more about, your book. It's coming out February 26th, Priory of the Orange Tree. And can you share a bit about
1: what this book is about and what you'd like for us to know? Like all of my books, it is quite difficult to summarize in a sentence because there's so many layers to it. So basically it's a An epic fantasy that sort of reimagines several old stories, one of which is The Legend of George and the Dragon, which I don't know how well known it is in the States, but in England, it's a very big deal because he's our patron saint. And it's sort of a feminist reimagining of that story. So the idea of the damsel in distress and the knight saving her from the evil dragon and it's basically set in a world that's inspired by the 16th and 17th centuries. And it follows four characters, two men and two women. And one of the women is a dragon rider in training. Uh, one of them is a lady-in-waiting to a queen. And then one of the men is a, an alchemist and the other one is a nobleman. And they're basically living in a world that's divided by its opinions on dragons and also deli- sort of deeply divided by religion, <laughs> Um, I don't know how clear that summary was. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That was amazing. Yeah. It's, so it's basically this huge epic fantasy where I've, when I was younger, I, I sort of missed the big kind of female authored fantasy of the 70s through the 90s. So I never found Tamora Pierce or Robin Hobb or sort of anyone like that. So when I was little, I was kind of missing that sense of female-driven fantasy. So this was kind of what I was trying to write with Priory, a a narrative that kind of casually focused on women. And that was, yeah, that's kind of my very long rambling explanation of what the Priory of the Orange Tree is. Let's
0: start from the beginning, the conception of the idea. When was that? Like, how long ago was that?
1: Well, if I'm being really technical, 20 years ago... (laughs) I was gonna say, did this start with Inferno? Because I know there were dragons there too. (laughs) Not quite with Inferno, it was actually long before that in a way. So I started writing Priory in April of 2015 and I was also writing my ongoing Bone Season series, which is seven books long. And I was on the third book, The Song Rising, and it was pretty much every author I've spoken to has had the difficult book. The Song Rising was my difficult book. I handed it in very quickly. I did not edit it enough. And it was basically a hot mess. So my editor and I were passing it back and forth, back and forth. And it just became this ongoing nightmare of editing. And basically, while my editor had it the first time, and there was this kind of unnerving silence from her, because I realized that now that she was like, oh, this is not you know, this is not what we expected from this book. So while I didn't hear from her, because I'm a full-time author, I needed something else to work on. And I started to turn my attention to this very old idea that I'd had about reimagining the story of George and the dragon. And I say that this started sort of 20 years ago, because I remember when I was very little, I went to a Christian school and there was this hymn that we used to sing about a knight and a dragon. And even when I was really little, I didn't like the hymn very much because I didn't like that the knight killed the dragon. I was always very sad about that. As I was older, I sort of looked into George and the dragon. And this is the ultimate damsel in distress story. You know, the damsel just stands there and is rescued by the knight and she really doesn't do anything at all. So I wanted to write a reimagining of that story. So I sort of set out to try and do that. And I looked into the various stories about George and the dragon, and they were much kind of uglier than I had ever realized. And I became determined that I wanted to reassemble this story in a way that made sense to me. And then I also kind of wanted to write a story about two different kinds of dragon. And I found it very interesting that Broadly, on the eastern side of the world, dragons are kind of more associated with water and are more benevolent. Not, not exclusively, but that's sort of obviously generally the case. And in the west, they are fire-breathing and they are historically evil. So I kind of wanted to write something that explored that divide as well. And I also wanted to write a kind of historical fantasy that looked into the Elizabethan era and the, it was politically very interesting around that time, So with all three of these things in mind, I was trying to do a lot with this book, I started writing Priory. And the whole process, I think I sold it about a year later. I sold it on a partial draft um, because by this point Bloomsbury knew me and I didn't need to send them the full manuscript. So I sent them a partial draft of Priory. I I can't remember exactly how long it was. It was quite a significant draft, but not the whole thing. And I sent them a very detailed synopsis and I, yeah, they, they bought it. And since then I've been working on it. And I think overall it took me about three years because this is a very, very long book. It's 840 pages, I think, which is absolutely massive. And it just turned into this huge epic fantasy project and it's, it's mostly gone quite smoothly I mean certainly in comparison to the song rising which was again a hot mess <laughs> um, this was a much easier book to write despite the length of it so yeah it's, it's been a pretty much a three-year process so the idea of it it's actually being published quite soon is very surreal to me because when it is actually published it's just going to be strange not having it to work on because I've had it there for so long <laughs>
0: I am just blown away by you. You're just like churning out work and like good work too. What is your writing schedule like with this book specifically? Because I know talking to authors, they say every book, every baby, every project has its like own different calling and and kind of like its own different style. So with this specifically, Priory of the Orange Tree, was this something where you set it up like an actual work day? And I know you mentioned earlier when we first hopped on the call that you don't have normal weekends. You, as a writer, you're just like writing all the way through. And this is just so inspiring for listeners to hear too, especially those who have children and day jobs they're trying to juggle and all that stuff where maybe something hearing about your schedule will inspire them and how they set their schedule. So could you please help break it down? I'd so appreciate that.
1: Absolutely, of course. So I kind of try to treat it like a day job. So I try to have hours that I work and this does not always work. It especially does not always work when I'm on deadline, when I tend to go well over my allotted hours. So I tend to wake up and I will check my emails and my Twitter and so on. Obviously, I always tend to end up on Twitter throughout the whole day. <laughs> but yeah, so I get up and um, do all that. I have my coffee. I go for my walk in the morning And then I come back to my office and I try to write for about eight hours every day, eight or nine hours. And I mean, that isn't necessarily just solid writing. Sometimes it's thinking, sometimes it's planning. But roughly, I I try to be at my desk in the zone eight or nine hours. I will inevitably go over that because I'm just that kind of person and especially on deadline, I've been worked 17 hour days because deadlines are terrifying and you need to hit them. But yeah, that's pretty much it. And I'm kind of determined this year to maybe try to have a weekend or to have kind of a day where I don't work because I think that would help me kind of reinvigorate my creativity if I just have a day off and then come back to it. Like whenever I get writer's block, I, I find it helpful to move away from my computer for a while and then come back. So that's pretty much it. Um, That's my writing day. And I mean, it depends, again, on, on which stage of the process you're at as well. So at the moment, I'm trying to do two things at the same time at the moment. So I'm trying to edit the fourth bone season book. And I'm also working on a new project related to the Priory of the Orange Tree. So at the moment, I'm editing on weekends. And then I am doing research for this project during the week. And I'm trying to kind of change up where I write. So I live in an apartment on my own, which is really, you know, it's a nice place to work. But sometimes it's better if I have a change of scene. So I I have a membership to the British Library which is a really lovely workspace. And I go and sort of do my research there because they have all these academic books that would be very expensive to buy. So I, I, go and, I go and sit in the library. So yeah, that's at the moment, my kind of average working week is sort of going to the British Library a few days in the week to do Priory-related stuff. And then I'm doing weekends of editing. And I'm also doing stuff around priories publication, obviously. So I'm kind of writing sort of articles and things like that. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment, and it's been interesting moving from just working on the Bone Season series, which is what I did for the first three books, and now I'm kind of trying to balance two worlds at the same time. Does that get confusing?
0: I even get my sister's names confused, and I'll accidentally call my aunt's dog my sister's boyfriend's name. So, like, I cannot imagine having to keep track of different worlds and different character names within two totally separate worlds. So, what is that like?
1: I've actually found it really helpful. I thought I was going to be confused by it because one of my projects is set in Paris in the year 2060 in a dystopian state. And the other one is set in kind of medieval land. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so vastly different. But I've actually found it helpful because I find that if I start to lose steam in one world, I can move to the other and work on that for a little while. And while I'm working on that, I start thinking about the the one I've just left. So in a way, it's kind of kept my love for both worlds alive. And not that I would have lost the love otherwise. But I think because The Bone Season is a seven book series, I think that it would have been quite creatively restrictive for me if I'd only really been working on those books. And with having the Priory world to work on at the same time actually kind of wets my creativity and it it keeps me excited and engaged with both. So it should be confusing, but it kind of is actually quite helpful. So, and I think that's something I'm going to do Always is to have two projects on the go because I I find that it benefits both of the projects I'm working on. Okay, that's incredible because I've talked to some people who say, just focus on
0: one project at a time. But for you, that's totally, completely opposite. You actually work better with more things going on and it makes total sense that you get excited jumping into each one. It's, I mean, it's terrible to compare it to this, but it's almost like having an affair, like, you know, when you watch in movies (laughs) where it's like, they're like so excited to see the mistress or like the and then it's like okay after they had time with the mistress like oh they're so happy to go home to like the husband or the wife where it's like oh like it almost makes you miss the other person and I'm like I mean maybe the better thing to say is almost like a polyamorous relationship where everyone's on the same page oh gosh I probably shouldn't have even compared it to that but I mean just you know like from what I see from all the movies it's kind of like that where it's like all this excitement it's like oh hey babe it's been a while I, I so miss you you know it's like that with your projects
1: it is. And it's like, it is kind of like keeping the marriage spicy, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but I swear, like, I think most authors, like they will say I'm cheating on my project with the other project. <laughs> (laughs) I say this as an unmarried person and I apologize to anyone who is married. (laughs) Kind of like that. I guess, I guess if we're sort of trying to think of it in a happy marriage, then it's like, I don't know, trying to make your relationship exciting again by going on a, like a first date again or renewing your marriage vows or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. I love Okay. There we go. See,
0: Samantha said it's so much better. So everyone listening in, just listen to what Samantha said. Don't even listen to me. I'm the bad influence. Okay. This is also coming from someone who is not married. Oh my gosh. My cheeks hurt just from laughing, by the way. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was so good. But my goodness. Cause for me, this inspires me to think like, okay, it's, it's okay to work on a different project and think of something else. You're not betraying the other project. It's okay. If anything might revive your love for the other project. So I already had so many takeaways from what you just shared. And I cannot imagine the rest of the community who they're actually working on their work in progress, you know? So i I hope you don't mind if I can actually weave into listener questions because it ties into, of course, your work. Of course. There is someone who was talking about how just overall research process, and since we are talking about your latest book out right now, Prior of the Orange Tree, maybe this could also pull out some interesting answers. Megan Cleveland, she said, I am so excited about this episode. I started reading Samantha's books last October, and she's now one of my favorite authors. I would love to know more about her research process and how she plans her world building. So let's just tire around Priory of the Orange Tree and
1: specifically with the research process and world building if that's okay. Absolutely um yeah so Priory was a very big book for me to research because not only was I researching history that I was kind of unfamiliar with but it was just a a generally very big research process so I was researching several countries during the 16th and 17th century and I actually start usually with Wikipedia. And I know that this, it's, it always seems like, oh, Wikipedia, it's such a dodgy place full of misinformation. And I'm stressing that I start there because first of all generally it is quite well fact-checked and second of all it gives you a good overview at least of things that you may not have encountered before now it is very important to fact check and that is where books come in (laughs) but wikipedia is often a good place to start just to give you a very general notion of what's going on and make you aware of like events and you know key things that happened in history and so on and then you can go and do your own research on that to make sure the facts are all correct So I tend to do that. um, And then I went to the British Library. Like I said, I get out books surrounding that historical period because Priory is a fantasy, but it is pretty heavily based on history. So I kind of researched it to some extent as though it were a historical novel. So I made a reading list and I tried to get through as many of those as I could. And I take notes. I also did some traveling. So I went to Japan. Um, That's obviously not possible for everyone. And I I certainly don't think that it's an absolutely crucial part of research to go to the place, because not everyone is in a financial position to do that. But I think it's it's helpful to do that. If you're specifically writing about a place that you, that you can kind of see it for yourself, that was very important to me. So yeah, so I do the research, I have a notebook, usually that I kind of wrote down, I kind of divide it into sections about, you know, clothing and travel and that kind of thing. In terms of actually threading all this into a world, there's a few different approaches you can take to this. So I don't know exactly who coined this system, but as far as I know, there are two basic methods of world building. So you either do from the top down or from the bottom up. And what that means is that when you do top down world building, you're thinking about the very big concepts first. So you're thinking about the cosmology of the world and the system of government and the, you know, the ancient history of the world that you're building. And then you slowly trickle down and start to add all of the fine details. The other method is that you start off with what is immediately relevant to your character. So I don't know, when I first started writing The Bone Season, for example, I was just thinking about what was relevant to my character at the beginning of the book. So what is the street that she's standing in? What does it look like? What kind of smells is she smelling? What kind of sounds is she hearing? That sort of bottom-up world-building. I tend to kind of do a mix of the two things. So I like to have at least a skeletal idea of the wider world because that's important to me in knowing how my character is going to fit into that structure. And that's especially important with something like epic fantasy because you are building such a big world that it kind of needs to work harmoniously together. So for me, I need to know some of the big details. And someone like Tolkien was that kind of world builder. He would think about all the big things, which we know from Tolkien because he was a very exhaustive world builder. Whereas I do think to some extent, however, that the bottom up world building technique is better in some ways. Because... For me a world never functions until there's a character in it. So even if I build every single aspect of this world and I know all of the politics and I know all of the history, I don't know for sure that it's going to work until I start writing about it, until I actually put a character in there. For me the character becomes the engine of the world. So I build the skeleton and the character gets thrown in there and the character is what helps me add the color and the flesh to the world. So Again, I think about, let's just say that I've roughed out the basic structure of the world of the Priory of the Orange Tree. And I know that one of the countries is going to be this kind of fantastical Elizabethan England. So I know roughly, you know, there's a queen and there's various ministers. And I know that, but then where's my character going to fit into it? And then I start thinking about the things that are relevant to that character. And I think that technique works for me because otherwise it's kind of like, where do you stop with the bottom down technique? Because if you're thinking about all of the big aspects of the world, if you're a perfectionist like me, you just wouldn't know where to stop. And you probably never actually write the book. You just write an encyclopedia about the world that you've built. I hope that will make sense. But there's just two basic approaches. And I think that you need to figure out which one works for you or like me, a combination of both.
0: Gosh. Okay. That was brilliant. I just feel like I took a quick overview of a master's class. So I'm going to jump in here with my own personal thoughts and questions right now where I know you started writing at so young, right? What we what we discussed. And I mean, you were already ready to pitch off to Penguin at eight years old, but as you got older and like, you just sound so, like you're so aware of technicalities and stuff like that. Were you I'm assuming your college classes didn't really help with the actual creative writing. You know what I mean because I I think people kind of misunderstand thinking like, "Oh, if you went to college for English, then you that that makes sense that you're an author right now." Where it's completely different. Unless you specifically majored or minored or focused on creative writing, maybe that's a little bit different, but like how did you figure out all these technicalities? Were you reading craft books? I know you mentioned you did a lot of research when it came to like how to pitch your book, how to get it be seen with literary agents and all that. But what about the actual craft of writing? Were there books or you were just kind of studying works from authors like you mentioned, Margaret Atwood and all your other favorite authors?
1: So I did mostly learn through reading. I don't really have any craft books because I thought about this before I came on the podcast, because I know that your community is very interested in the craft of writing. And a lot of authors that have been on the podcast have been able to recommend specific books. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really have one. It kind of unnerved me because I was like, should I should I have had one? Because everybody else seems to have had one. And no, I didn't. So the main book I use, and I do highly recommend this book, it's not, it's kind of, I guess in a way, a little bit of craft is in there. It's called the Writers and Artists Yearbook. And they do a new one every year, and it is basically a comprehensive list of agents who are in, I think, America and the UK. And there's little bits of kind of craft advice and writing advice, often from authors and sometimes from agents and editors in there. Certainly in the UK, this is like the definitive book that aspiring authors want to have. It's like the key tool if you want to get published. But that's honestly, I think, the only book I read. Oh, thinking about it, I did when I was still working on Aurora, I did read a book, and what was it called? It was Self-Editing for Fiction Writers, I think it was called. I can't remember the authors off the top of my head. But that was a book I read that sort of taught me about the very basics of editing. And because I read it so long ago, I do not quite know whether to recommend it or not. But I have read it. So we don't do majors and minors in the UK. We just have one subject we do, which is kind of disappointing because I would have kind of liked to do a minor. That sounds really cool. But it was just purely English language and literature. And Oxford does do a creative writing course, but it's a master's degree. They don't do a bachelor's degree. And I remember actually, I wrote an essay while I was at Oxford, sort of lamenting the fact that the English degree only focused on the reading and not on the writing aspect of the craft. There's a kind of weird... Not quite a stigma associated with creative writing here, but it's this idea that it's not really a real subject, whereas something like English is a very, you know, it's got this sort of it's traditional and kind of it has this reputation as being a good subject to take. Whereas creative writing is seen by some people wrongfully, I should add, as kind of a soft option to take at university. And I think that's why Oxford has only recently introduced it. But I, I, I got really cross about this while I was at university because I was thinking, why do we put so much more kind of status? Why do we attach so much more status to the studying of books, but not to the writing of books? And I was actually quite frustrated that there is no kind of creative element to that degree. I mean, that element is probably in other universities, but certainly not in Oxford. It's a very kind of conventional tradition bound place.
0: Mm, Okay, that's very interesting. We'll make sure to wrap it up with those other two questions. I know again, you gave us two hours of your time, two freaking hours. I didn't even notice. (laughs) Oh my God. You're so sweet. I didn't even notice until I looked down. I'm like, oh my gosh, poor Samantha taking away from her writing time on the weekend. Oh my God.
1: This podcast is is so wonderful because it just feels like you're in a cafe with a friend just talking. You're such a fantastic host. I really have not noticed the two hours go by. It's just been like having a chat with a friend. Oh my
0: gosh. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much for that i feel like i'm just meeting my new friend too and just hanging out as well and just grabbing some coffee and tea and just chatting away so thank you for making this so fun truly and i love your personality you're just a wonderful human being period okay so the next question we have from jade may hemming she said as a uk author i'd love to know her process navigating a u.s dominated market is there a strong difference in uk lit That's
1: a great question. So we have a lovely book community here in the UK. It's really close knit. Everyone is so supportive of one another. And I've personally made some really amazing friends. The market is definitely US dominated, like you say. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One of which is that there are just more readers in the US since the population is much larger. Also, I feel like YA in particular kind of exploded in the US in a way it never really did here. And UK publishers tend to import a lot of US YA, and those books often receive harder marketing pushes. I don't think this is quite the same with adult literary fiction, which seems to do well in the UK and gets a lot of support. Having said that, we do have a really enthusiastic YA fan base and there's a great festival called the Young Adult Literature Convention where everyone comes together to celebrate YA, which I absolutely love. I've been for the last few years and it's just fantastic. We produce you know, excellent and groundbreaking fiction here and it deserves to be more widely read. So I try to highlight UK fiction and talk about it when I can. I've personally managed to get a pretty solid reader base in the U.S. because Bloomsbury has done a lot to push me out there and they haven't treated me any differently to a U.S.-based author as far as I can tell. So I've been able to go on tour, for example. They've invested in my career. I think it probably helps that I have the same publisher on both sides of the pond, which means they can present one unified campaign. So with one cover, one release date, that sort of thing, that probably has a positive effect I also try to stay available to my readers via social media to help bridge the physical gap between me and my U.S. audience. And for me, there are also there have been several U.S. authors who've given a lot of support to the Priory of the Orange Tree and let their readers know it exists, which has been incredible. And this is why I love being an author and being part of this industry. It's so big hearted and generous and everyone helps each other out. So to summarize, it can be a challenge in a U.S.-dominated market, but there are many ways to reach readers all over the world. Thank you for shining light on that. I'm sure Jade's going to really
0: appreciate that. So Tracy Kenworth is our third and final listener question. She said, as someone who is facing the second of two surgeries early this year, I wonder how you handle life with your writing career when something major happens. Are there any tips you might have to push through? Of course, I know there must be resting as well. But this is about maybe how you handle coming back from something with still taking care of yourself and your family.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope, gosh, I hope the surgeries go well. Um, There's always going to be something that takes you away from your writing. You know, real life is constantly vying with the creative process. I've been quite fortunate that I haven't had anything really major that's taken me away. I mean, I, I guess the kind of the major thing that was sort of struggling against my writing was actually when I was at university, but I haven't had anything that sort of specifically knocked me right off track but I think it's just the belief that you can get back into it I would imagine so I know that a lot of people give writing advice and it's often very well intentioned but there is no one way of being an author and the problem is is that a lot of this writing advice is going to be something like you have to write every day otherwise you're not a real author So when you have something knock you out, like something like a surgery would, you would immediately start to feel like, oh, maybe I'm not a real author because I'm not writing every day and this thing is taking me away. That is just fundamentally not true. And there's no one way to be an author. You don't need to write every day. You can take the time away from writing for a while to recover from a surgery or whatever it is you've gone through. It doesn't make you any less of a writer. And if you take time away, that's absolutely fine. There's no rush to be a published author either there's no rush to write anything and I'm always kind of very aware of how my story must have looked to some people because again publishing does sort of fetishize being young and achieving things young and I've seen a lot of people who feel like they have to rush out their writing by a certain time like I have to be published by the time I'm 25 or I have to be published by the time I'm 30 And again, totally not true. And the other day, um, Bridget Kemmerer, who wrote A Curse So Dark and Lonely, she was just saying this on her Twitter that she's, I think, 41, and she just hit the New York Times list. And there's this idea that if you don't rush your writing out there, that you're going to somehow miss the boat. And again, it's just totally not true. So if you have something that knocks you away from your writing for a while, just be kind to yourself. Don't think that you have to Rush to get back to it. Your creative energy, that spark that keeps your writing going, that's not going to die. That's a part of you. And even if it kind of burns low for a while, it will come back. So just be nice to yourself and don't listen when people say that you're not a real writer unless you write every day or anything like that. It's just not true.
0: Oh, Samantha, that was so freaking good. Oh my gosh. Thank you for that. And you're so kind. I love the way you answered that question. It just shows how much heart you have overall as a person. So thank you. Okay, so I am going to wrap it up now with asking you a quick rapid fire question, which is what are small manageable steps you would advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals?
1: Hmm. For me, I like to have a task list and I've started using an app called, I think it's Todoist. And it gives me a list of, Tasks that ideally I like to complete by a certain deadline. So you can set what deadline you need. So I will have written chapter 25 by Monday, for example. That's a typical goal that I'll set for myself. And again, I kind of find self imposed deadlines quite difficult because they often just fly by and you're not really accountable to yourself. Like I don't get punished if I don't hit this deadline, but I quite like just having that in the back of my mind, it's something that helps me manage my writing goals. And especially because this year, I'm trying to do two separate projects at once. I do find it quite helpful just to have a list of ideally, where I want to be by a certain time. And again, like I said, if you miss it, it's not the end of the world. But I just like having that loose structure for me. So that's a a small step I take, I make myself a little list of when I'd like to get things done by.
0: Brilliant. I love to-do lists, especially when you check it off. You feel so good. Um, All right. So now recommended books, and we basically are completed with this amazing conversation. Any books that you've read lately, or I know you mentioned again, Handmaid's Tale was really pivotal for you, but any other books that you've read that you're like, holy
1: moly, this this is how you write a damn book. I recently read The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin. Oh, yes. I've heard lots about this. Yes. It is absolutely fantastic. I've obviously heard a lot about it because, you know, she's won the Hugo three times in a row. And... I read it. It's just brilliant. It's like nothing I've ever read before, just the world building and the characterization. And there's this amazing twist in it. And I can't wait to read the rest of the books. Um, So that is something I would really recommend, especially for fantasy writers. She's just brilliant. In terms of books I've read this year, there's a great debut out, which is called Shadow Scent. And it's coming out in, I think, in autumn in the US. And it's, By P.M. Freestone. And it's basically about an empire where scent is the most important of the five senses. So perfume is worth more than gold. And it's just great. It's like a classic quest narrative, but with this scent based kind of magic system. And I have never seen anything quite like that before. I'm always very drawn to unique world building. That's why I love the fifth season so much. And I really love that in Shadow Scent as well. I'll give you one more. There's an absolutely amazing book called State of Sorrow by Melinda Salisbury, who's a British YA author. And it's, again, I always love unique world building. It's set in a a secondary world, but instead of focusing on monarchies, which is what fantasy usually does, it's set in a world where there are elections. And it's sort of about the battle for democracy, but in a fantasy world. And I just love that because, you know, even me, I write about queens and kings and there's something really alluring about that, but... Yes, yeah, State of Sorrow is just very different from that. And it's about a young woman stepping into the political sphere. And it's so kind of timely, this celebration of young people taking action in politics. And the sequel to that is called Song of Sorrow, and that's coming out in March. Um. Oh, and one more. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love this. So many books I love. Um, The Bells by Danielle Clayton. <laughs> Once again, unique world building. And it's about this world where beauty is so important and there are these these women called bells who can control beauty and you can pay for the bells to make you look however you like and it's a really fascinating exploration of body politics and our obsession with beauty and it's set in this kind of almost like a a baroque wonderland where everything is beautiful and consumable and there are these things called teacup elephants which is adorable And it's just fantastic. It's completely lush. Like when I was reading it, when I kind of emerged from it, it was like, I'd forgotten the real world existed. The real world looked dull in comparison to this book because Danielle is just such a fantastically brilliant writer and everything is so lush and every sentence is just so beautifully wrought. So yeah, those are my four recommendations. Oh my gosh. I love that. Thank you so much, Samantha. Let everyone know where they can find you online to say hi. Okay. So I have a, an awkward story about why my Twitter handle is what it is. <laughs> so <laughs> my Twitter handle is at say, like S-A-Y underscore Shannon. <laughs> the reason for this is because while I was at uni, that's when I set up my Twitter account and I decided that I was going to be a complete edgelord and everyone was not going to call me Sam or Sammy. I was going to think of a cool new nickname, so I decided that everyone was going to call me Say. Obviously, because my friends are logical people, they said, no, that's stupid. <laughs> 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 nobody called me say but then I got my verification badge on Twitter and you can't change your handle once that happens oh my god. <laughs> with this ridiculous name so I think that's the same on my Instagram as well but that's where I'm at at say underscore Shannon for oh my god this is amazing okay done
0: and done and everyone we had say Shannon on the show with us today no <laughs> that is brilliant oh my gosh thank you so much Samantha, I love that. Also, this whole conversation—I am
1: living for this. Thank you so much for your time. Time to you. It's I, thank you for making this publication and writing process so accessible because it can be so obscure when you're on the outside. And just listening to the podcast and hearing—even for me as an author who's been in the industry for seven years—just hearing other authors talk about their process and what they're going through, and you just realize that it's a really different road for everyone, and that's just so amazing. So, thank you you for doing this podcast and thank you for having me
0: and that wraps up our episode with samantha shannon samantha i had such a lovely time talking with you thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so honest and open throughout our entire conversation you shared so much wisdom and helpful advice that our listeners are going to love so thank you so very much storytellers thank you for hanging out and listening in as always Please be sure to also drop by and say hi to Samantha over on Twitter at say underscore Shannon. And a friendly reminder, if you'd love a spot in my upcoming beta challenge, the deadline to join is on Monday, February 25th by 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Send us an email at hello at 88cupsoftea.com, and in the subject line, be sure to write, I'm in, and we'll follow up with the next steps. Or if you have any questions about this beta challenge, Also, shoot us an email at hello at 88cupsoftea.com. Have a super productive week, and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye!